This is the Monday, March 26th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we're bringing you a special episode recorded live at the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference. The JJCHC, co-sponsored by the American Journalism Historians Association and the History Division of the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication, invited us to close out their 2018 event at New York University. The spot on campus at Number 20 Bowery is in sight of the Cooper Union, where Abraham Lincoln gave the 1860 speech that launched him into the presidency. And it steps away from 114 Bowery, where Steve Brody, legendary for jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, or so he claimed, pumped out cold suds at his bar, and generally promoted his career. The spot is also just a few blocks from Manhattan's oldest bar, McSorley's Old Ale House. Familiar to those of you who enjoyed my chat with Rafe Bartholomew on his memoir, Two and Two, McSorley's My Dad and Me. Joining us at NYU is one of my all-time favorite time travelers, Esther Crane. The great and powerful Oz behind the wildly popular blog, Ephemeral New York, which runs under the tagline, chronicling an ever-changing city through faded and forgotten artifacts. I've been fortunate to know Esther ever since she wrote 2014's New York City in 3D in the Gilded Age. It's a box set that not only offered a book with Esther's sharp writing, but also rare images compiled by the New York Historical Society complete with a stereoscopic viewer, to bring the turn of the last century to life in three dimensions. Esther has spent 15 years writing and editing for top consumer magazines and health lifestyle websites, including Cosmo, Self, Shape, Glamour, Women's Health, and Health magazines. Now she's back on my bookshelf with The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910. Find her at ephemeralnewyork.wordpress.com where you can sign up for emails of each new article she posts. You can also follow her at ephemeralny on Twitter and like her Facebook page. Okay, now that we've put on our bowler hats and laced up those shirtwaists, let's head off to the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference and hear from Nick Hershon of William Patterson University as we join Esther Crane and visit The Gilded Age in New York. 
Thank you again for coming out today and for staying to the end of the conference. And we have a neat treat at the end of JJCHC. Did I get that right? It took me a year to be able to say that without fail. Today we're going to have the History Author Show doing a taping of their podcast. This will be really neat because we'll be able to listen back to this. I recommend that you download this. I have it subscribed so I get my episodes whenever Dean puts one out. Mm -hmm. But also, I think this is an interesting opportunity for us to learn about promoting our own research. We often don't think about podcasts as a potential outlet. We think about the traditional newspaper research. But uh, why not? We do a lot of interesting work that I think would be really neat for an audience wider than just the people who read university press books or academic journals. So that's a big reason why I want to have this event here today. So we're going to have this recording, and I understand that there will be some discussion during the event about how media historians like us can get uh, promoted, and then there will be an opportunity for you to ask some questions to wrap up later on. All right? Um, so without further ado, we present Dean Carianis and Esther Crane with the History Author Show. Thank you. Hope we're worthy of your excitement. Eddie Murphy used to come out and people would give him a big screaming, laughing, applauding, and he said, you haven't heard anything yet. <laughs> but so we do appreciate it. Don't get me wrong. So Esther and I are going to do what we would usually do. She's the author. So you're going to get to watch the sausage being made, or since I'm <laughs> Greek, the souvlaki being carved. I'm joined by Esther Crane at the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute in New York City. Esther is the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1872-1910, as well as New York City in 3D in the Gilded Age. She's also the William Randolph Hearst-like figure behind the <laughs> ephemeral New York blog. Thanks to the JJCHC for inviting us to close out their history conference with you. And thanks, Esther, for sitting down to join the History Author Show. Thank you very much, Dean. I'm a big admirer of your podcast and your wealth of history knowledge. Esther is one of my favorite people in any time frame because she's <laughs> really right there with me. Some people were talking about World War I earlier, and we said we're, we have to stop them and just stick right here in the Gilded Age period. So we trade a lot of pictures back and forth. When I hear Esther is writing a new book, I immediately begin pestering her for it so that I can see it. And that brings us to something that we both love to do, and that's look at great pictures. We have some here that are showing for our audience today, but listeners at home can see those in the Gilded Age in New York, and we can see some of those echoes here in New York City. Since we're at a journalism conference, let's start with some of these figures that were journalists at the time in the Gilded Age. Jacob Rees is probably the best known one from the How the Other Half Lives. People have heard of this book. They've heard the phrase. How did they go about changing their New York and trying to use journalism to affect change and remember those people or make them not the forgotten New Yorkers? It was really more like three quarters of them. So how did guys like Jacob Rees go about doing their job? Well, I know he came to this country, got a job as a correspondent at one of the New York City newspaper row papers, and I don't think he made a splash at all. I think he also did stints as a carpenter. Um, he did took jobs around the country. But he was really affected by the social conditions at the time, the incredible poverty, uh, the tenement districts. Uh, he himself was very poor, and he uh, remembered what it was like struggling uh, as a immigrant New Yorker, uh, fresh out of Castle Garden, 
trying to find a place to sleep and eat. And clearly, once he became established as a journalist, you know, he had his career established that stuck with him. That was sort of um, how he started with his book, How the Other Half Lives, which came out in 1890. He took all the photographs himself and, um, you know, wrote up all the uh, passages about just how people lived in this time period where there was so much wealth. It's kind of the underbelly of the era. You've told me one great story about Jacob Reese, and that was about the park because he was big about parks, and that's something that comes about here in the Gilded Age, is having public spaces for people to use. And you talk about the kids, where here's Jacob Rees, as you can all relate to maybe at this moment, and say, when you're in a speech, you're listening to something, you're saying, we want to just go play if you're a kid. And here's this guy going on and on. And Jacob Rees, I think he was such a a passionate guy, but also very, you have to understand why this park's important. And having come from that world, I think he gets his pocket watch stolen his first night in New York. He has something like that, a story. He had a, he had a puppy that I think was taken away from him, right? It was a Well, harp. the puppy was, he, I think the puppy was killed by a policeman, grabbed it and snapped its neck just in some kind of rage over something, and that really affected him. I mean, besides the fact that the police department in New York was, I guess you could call corrupt at the time, it was just sort of a symbol of the brutality of what it's like to struggle and survive in the city. I was going to try not to open with the snap neck puppy. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> you brought it up. I have to. <laughs> but this is part of what the city was like at the time, commonplace violence that we wouldn't think of today in I guess what you'd call normalized society. If we see something like that happening, we know it still happens in our city, but it's not just, oh, hey, I might walk out of work today and then end up rolled on 11th Avenue or even run over by a train. They used to call 11th Avenue Death Avenue because they would have the trains coming up and down there but before they were able to bury them, before they changed how we worked on trains. You'd have one kid with a little flag, a little cowboy, and that was yeah. about it. But you'd get run over all the time. It was really a tough time to be in the city and not exactly as separated in social strata either, as you've mentioned and as you explore here in the Gilded Age in New York. It's not just the very poor and the very rich. It's really different castes within that. And I love that about your book, that it tells you people weren't wearing two T-shirts in town. They weren't just Jets or Giants fans. They were just all different people where you were not necessarily just an Aster or just one of these street Arabs that were sleeping there in the Bowery in the doorways, right? Right, exactly. How do you go about picking those pictures? You have so much with Jacob Reese that, as I said, he was such a popular figure, but you have other guys. For instance, you have Stephen Crane, no relation to you, a different spelling of the name, <laughs> and he's up there in the Tenderloin District, which is no longer there. If any of you have heard of the Tenderloin, it's where Penn Station is now, roughly. And again, Esther and I are pretty much the only ones who go through there and still sing the old Tenderloin drinking songs and remember <laughs> what was there. So a fellow like him or Nellie Bly, who there's a book here on the wall outside about her life, how did you work in them? How did you decide, let me make it even, let me not just retell the Jacob Reese stories and use all his pictures and let him take over your book? Well, there's just so much beyond the Jacob Reese stories that, that is worth telling. I mean, you can access newspaper archives and you can just read about bread lines. The first bread lines were in New York City, right by Grace Church, um, when a baker named Fleischmann, the family that started Fleischmann's yeast, 
saw all of these homeless men outside the bakery as it closed, that they were going to scrounge for free bread, and he decided to start a bread line and to actually give them some dignity and feed them bread and coffee all night. There, there are just so many stories like that that go beyond you know what we've heard of from Jacob Reese, who I think also people may not realize is he actually also you know posed those people for his photos for the greatest effect. Those street Arab photos, the famous one of the boys huddled together in the fire escape, or I think yeah, it was on yeah. a steam grate. You know, I think they those were all pretty much posed. Yeah, it, I love that one too because if you look close. At first glance, you say, look at these poor kids. They're just sleeping on the ground, which was sad. And I'm sure that that was part of their lot in life. But then you look close and you see, if you've ever seen a kid or been a kid yourself, which I suppose most of you have been, you see the look on the face. He's smiling and laughing with his eyes closed. And all of his friends are. And they're almost a little bit laughing, you can imagine, because they know they're playing a prank on the people that are watching in concert with Jacob Reese. But part of it, I always say, was also the cameras at the time. There certainly was poverty. And he was just trying to illustrate it. It wasn't that he was faking. No, I wouldn't say faking. Just, you know, to actually take a picture it wasn't as easy as we know today. But the street Arabs and the other people, I think were, I think it's sort of accepted that they were somewhat posed a little bit. But of course, the fact that you could just find street Arabs and ask them to pose is enough to illustrate how right. deep the poverty was yeah. at the time. I like, there's another picture. I think it's on 23rd and it's a girl who is mugging for the camera and a paper boy. And you oh, can just yeah, yeah. see very early in people's lives where they're just beginning to understand photography and it's the children that immediately begin to take to it. Just, just like today, just like any time. Like you were talking about typewriters earlier and how it's a dinosaur to talk about a typewriter. Yeah. They really didn't necessarily know how to stand still and do things, but here are people who are able to be posed, who are willing to do it, who understand. And that might be the only picture that was ever taken of them in their life that really proves they were here unless they have a headstone. And many of them didn't. They were buried on Hart's Island here, the Potter's Field mm -hmm. up in the East River. But you capture them here in the book and you're able to give them back their lives, prove that they existed. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the reason I wanted to write the book. The incredible wealth and the parties and the balls and the Vanderbilts and the Astors, all that is fascinating that people lived that way and adhered to these social rules that they created for themselves. But what I find really fascinating is how the average person lived. And at the time, you could say that the average person in New York City was quite poor and quite what we would call underprivileged. And to me, that's the most interesting thing that a guy made, I think, $300 a year was sort of the average salary. That's incredible. I mean, that's an astoundingly low amount of money translated you know, into today's dollars, but that was what a worker made at the time. I find that more interesting and how he lived, what his family, what kind of housing his family had. The tenements, you know, they were actually expensive. I think it was 12 to $15 a month for those horrible squalid rooms that we look at now. We just can't believe that anybody lived in them. But that's where you had to live. There was no other option. They thought that those would be such great revolutionary places for people to live. And then if they didn't count on you cramming so many people in there. And then the city just exploding. Things like the Tenement Museum down on Orchard Street. 
somebody was saying, I might have been somebody who was giving the tour and they said they had a border and I don't know where they put them, but they had a fire escape. Yeah. And I talked to her and I said, well, people lived out there. So it defeated the purpose of even when they finally mandated fire escapes because people would sleep out there, put all kinds of junk there because they just didn't have the room. In this family's case, they appeared to have just rented out their fire escape. So if there's a fire there and you need to get seven people down there, including a bunch of children that are under five, it's impossible. And a lot of them died from smoke inhalation. It was a tough time. But there is this surprising idea, surprising to people who are only casually aware of the Gilded Age from Mark Twain's quote about it being, well, he was one who coined the phrase, right? Gilded on the outside, but inside it's mm -hmm. not. Gilded is just to cover the cheap lead inside. But there is a middle class, and you talk about that in the Gilded Age in New York, of people who have started to have things like leisure time, things like being able to spend a weekend, P.S. Slocum, the steamboat, the doomed steamboat mm -hmm. that sails the East River. So you were able to bring those people back because you all think about the street Arabs because we've seen Reese's picture. Your heart goes out to them. You've seen the Astors because we still see many of their mansions, and those are stunning. How did you go about bringing back the middle class people who were lost in the middle? I found them in a lot of newspaper archives. I found them in diaries. There's some great diaries at the New York Public Library in the, I'm not sure which section, but they have like a rare book reading room that you, you can't take them out, but you can read them there. And one of the most fascinating I found was the diary of a teenage boy. And his family was middle class. I think his father was a clerk. They lived in Harlem, which was somewhat still the country at the time, but you know, they went to Barnum's Museum. That's where everybody went, especially kids for entertainment. They took a week's vacation in the summer to the Catskills, which is fascinating because we all still take weeks vacations in the summer. People like that, they're, they're in the shadows, but there really was sort of a nascent middle class forming. And once the Gilded Age ended and sort of the progressive policies that came out of that era took hold, and unions helped drive up wages, and without such a strong influx of immigration, the middle class became sort of the middle class that we had through most of the 20th century, although I guess there's an argument now that we don't have as much of a middle class anymore. It's interesting to always see the same effects, and I know you'd expect us to because we look at this era constantly, but I think anybody who reads this, and I've gone to some of your author events before, they're just amazed, and the questions that people will ask and get answered in here, it really proves the idea that history is playing over and over in some ways and is cyclical, and you can relate so much to those people and that brings me to my next question, since we're talking about journalism here, and you mentioned reading these old articles to put together the Gilded Age in New York. If you pick up a column or a news article from the Gilded Age, we also love to trade those back and forth. You have them at Ephemeral NY, which is your Twitter handle. Mine is History Dean. We like to share those. You have all the ways you put them out there with Ephemeral New York, your email blast, your Facebook page, your stories, the blog itself. When a modern reader picks those up, especially people in journalism today, they see that clever turn of phrase. They see that those guys are working hard to capture your dime, <laughs> as Paul Simon sang. And in those days when that might have been the whole the cost of a week's subscription, it was a big deal to write so well, to capture people, to sell yourself, to inform, entertain. So what do you think we can learn today if somebody here at the journalism conference or somebody at home wants to get their writing out there? What can they learn from these writers that you excerpt here in The Gilded Age in New York? Um, 
write well, find something that nobody else has written about, find a little sliver of something. I think the, the human angle, the personal stories, um, that's what I drew on for the book, which attracted me. And I could go into these deep dives in newspaper archives just for hours and hours, just reading about people's lives and what they did and how they, how they lived. And I think focusing on that for any journalist in any medium is really key. And when you get sometimes those one newspaper stories, we talked about the pictures, how that might be the only picture taken of a person. It's tough when you find that one news story. For instance, Edith Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's wife, said she felt that the only time a woman should be in the newspaper was three times her birth, getting married, and dying. And that's why Alice Roosevelt Longworth, TR's daughter from the first <laughs> marriage, she was constantly in the papers, and the papers loved her, and they just would follow her everywhere. Literally around the world, they followed Alice because she was just great copy. Things like TR told her, you can't smoke as long as you're under my roof. So she went up on the roof of the White House, and she smoked up there. <laughs> so those are real stories that you get when you get a nice thorough story like that. But some of these people who are in the middle, I imagine that as you're putting together your book, you're finding some of them that maybe it's one story and it's almost half told. You wish you could learn more. Were there people like that where you really wish you could follow up um, with one of these little kids or something? Oh, absolutely. A lot of them were the shop girls. This whole, there was this whole, um, people were captivated by the idea of the shop girl because after the Civil War, Lots of women who were working continued to work, and commerce was big. There were lots of shops. So who manned the shops? The shop girls. And there are tons of articles about their lives and what they ate and how they spent their Sunday, their day off. And, you know, I always wondered, like, what happened to these young shop girls? You know, we're talking about, like, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. What did they end up doing? I, I do wish that there was a little bit more about that that I could find. It's tough because their names are often impossible to look up. You know, there's a thousand Mary Coopers. Right, there's a thousand. Right. You know, it's not like my name. One of the things about it is at least really unique. You know, if I want to look up Carianus, I'm not going to find a lot of different people. But some folks, like, it's so easy for them just to blend into those pages of history. And you give them back their lives really here in this book when you can look at them, even if it's just a picture. It's something to prove that they were here in this city before us. It makes you feel so connected to that long line mm -hmm. of New Yorkers from the very first people that were here, even before the Dutch came, and then before it became part of England, and it became America, and the first capital. This is something that really, you can look at the Gilded Age and relate to them, I've heard you say, because many of the things are the same. They're in our same street grids. We have so many echoes of them from back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the things that I love about the Gilded Age is that's when the city that we know it really took hold. Again, like you mentioned, the street grid really filled out. There were some spots of sort of country-ish areas in Manhattan, but basically development, you know, all the way up through Harlem had taken place. Um, the bridges brought the different boroughs together, and then obviously in 1898, as we know, we became one greater New York, one united city. The elevated trains stretched from end to end, the subways, the idea of mass transit, that you could just get on an elevated train at any hour and go where you want to go. All of that took hold in the Gilded Age. And even leisure time activities like the sport teams that we rally around. Well, when sport teams took hold in Manhattan and in Brooklyn, that gave sort of the area like some kind of a fused identity. Like we're New Yorkers. We support the, the Dodgers or, you know, I think the Giants, whoever was, you know, the early teams at the time. 
And that's sort of the same way it is today. We rally around our teams, we have our mass transit, we have the same streets, and in many cases, many of the same buildings. And that feeling of, you've done something. Sinatra put that one line in a song, there's a comic you all may have heard of, he has a Netflix special, Ryan Hamilton, and he comes from Idaho. And he says, because Sinatra put that in one song and every New Yorker believes it. <laughs> Everybody is like, you know, if I'm a New Yorker, once you've done it, people just have that feeling of being together because we are. We do have that thing, as you said, or things like the sports teams, like being able to go to Times Square for New Year's Eve. We start to have the ball drop right. It's mm -hmm. Long Acre Square at the time, early on in it. And then you're all out of there and it's empty then in, in two hours because we have the subway. It's really something to be able to go. That's another comic. Jackie Mason says when he plays in New Jersey, he says, the first thing everybody tells you is how close they are to Manhattan. It's like, oh, one day I rolled over out of bed. I was there in New York. That's how close I am. And, and that's the idea that it wasn't just a bunch of different people, even though they were from all over the world at this point. It was we're consolidating as a people, not just as a city when these five boroughs merge together into this Voltron of a greater city, to use a really timely reference. <laughs> and it's a bunch of people who they're not standing around saying, well, hey, this is the Gilded Age. Let's check it out. They're living their lives exactly as we are now. And unbeknownst to them, when we flip through the pages of your book, they're laying the groundwork. They're building the buildings. They're starting the trends. They're rooting for the sports team. They're creating feeling that we're all going to have 100 years later, 120 years later. So you're really giving them their due here. Yeah, the other thing that you have to remember, too, is that it was in the Gilded Age when New York became a 24-hour city. I mean, certainly we had gas lights, but they were pretty weak. There was a lot of crime at night. Nobody went out at night. It wasn't safe. Mass transit, you know, you're, you could get a streetcar, but, you know, where were you going to go? There was no electricity. In the 1880s, the st electric streetlights started showing up, and by the 1890s, you had these blazing marquees. All of a sudden, the New York City became 24 hours. Offices could stay open. People could work later. There's this great article I found where um, they called electric light little balls of sunshine, which just completely changed the way we live our lives. And all of that happened in the Gilded Age and primarily in New York, 24-hour city, a city that never sleeps. You still find some of those street lamps, like to look at them and say, that's from back then. That lit somebody's way home 100 years ago. Yeah. And now it's lighting my way. You can touch it in a way that, unfortunately, if you go to some cities, certainly go to Los Angeles, and they knock things down. I talk to authors. You'll see the people here in the audience, the secret life of Anna Blanc, and then the woman in the camp for Trunk, who's actually based on a true story of a young woman they found up in Hell's Kitchen in, oh, in the trunk of a man, Chinese man. And this was very scandalous at the time. They found her dead in the trunk. They never found him. Speaking of people, you'd wonder where they went. But I would ask her, what's left of Anna Blanc's Los Angeles in 1908? And really nothing, so little of it. Mm. And yet here, we can walk out of here right onto the Bowery and see so much, not just McSorley's up the street, but there are places you can go and stand, and you mentioned that, in the Gilded Age in New York, and really still see so much of it. And I think Madison Square is the place that you mentioned, is, is a real good spot. For me, I think that the Gilded Age is just really symbolized by Madison Square, which at the time, for much of the Gilded Age, was sort of where the most fashionable, stylish people lived. New York always marched forward, so they packed up their mansions and moved farther up Fifth Avenue at some point. But it was a huge amount of wealth there. 
23rd Street is also where Ladies Mile ends, that great stretch of Broadway, and then going back down to 6th Avenue, where all the fanciest emporiums were these gigantic, you know, what we would call today department stores that employed thousands and served thousands. And you had women lining up in carriages and doing all of the family shopping, you know, something that, you know, men and women do today. The idea of shopping as leisure came about then. 23rd Street also was where the great Fifth Avenue Hotel was. I know you know the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which was where all the big politicians and power brokers all met, and, you know, the most famous people stayed. That, I think, was knocked down in the 1910s or 20s, but it came about in 1859 and really spanned the whole Gilded Age. Delmonico's was on Madison Square, the great restaurant for all the Patriarch's Balls and all the other fancy events of the era. Madison Square was where the theater district coalesced for a long time. It was really the center of the Gilded Age. And of course, Madison Square Garden was on the northern end. If people from New York ever think like Madison Square Garden today is not anywhere near Madison Square, but it started out there. And by the way, the Fifth Avenue Hotel, I want to say that it was the 1910s because I know Senator Tom Platt, who is one of the big bosses here, they called him the easy boss, and he had what they called the Amen Corner there in the Fifth Avenue Hotel where he lived, and they all got together there before they knocked it down for one last night of talking politics and drinking beer and all the other things they did. So that's where that phrase comes from, by the way, Amen Corner. Another one of those things that sticks with us. It's not just things from Theodore Roosevelt like my hat is in the ring and the lunatic fringe and speak softly and carry a big stick, and by the way, TR just popped up over my head in our slideshow while I was talking. <laughs> Talking. So he's or smiling. That's good. Even just like a saying, like sold him the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, like that's just all of, like the Brooklyn Bridge was such a phenomenal achievement at the time, such a major thing. So we still have these sayings today. My guest is Esther Crane, author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910. And we are live at the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference on the campus of New York University. Visit her captivating blog at ephemeralnewyork.wordpress.com. You can like the Facebook page for Ephemeral New York, and you can follow Ephemeral NY on Twitter. She also has an email list where she blasts out updates, and I know I always love to wake up to those in the morning. What do you do? Monday and Thursday do you do? Sometimes just Monday? Lately, only Mondays. Getting a little busy, yeah. but... Well, Monday is pretty good, though, for you to produce anything for Monday morning, because most of us don't want to get out of bed, but if you know, you have <laughs> Esther's uh, Ephemeral New York waiting for us. By the way, you can find all of these interviews online, either at historyauthor.com or in my archives at our iHeartRadio channel or on iTunes. I mentioned that because one of my prior guests, New York Times Urban Affairs correspondent Sam Roberts, who we interviewed for his book, A History of New York in 101 Objects, calls The Gilded Age in New York, quote, a beguiling, lavishly illustrated book that epitomizes what Ms. Crane calls the city's incredible energy and sense of its own greatness and destiny, unquote. Esther, I want to focus on that key word that Sam Roberts used there. He said, destiny. 
it holds a very special place in the 19th century American mind. And in this 40 years that you focus on, 1870-1910, the destiny is not about manifest destiny. It's not just about expanding uptown and to those outer boroughs and bringing them into greater New York, but it's up. So I wonder if you'd describe the transformation of Gotham's skyline. I know here in the beginning of the Gilded Age in New York, you say you couldn't even really call it much of a skyline in the beginning, but it is now. Yeah, I think the tallest structure for a hundred years was the steeple of Trinity Church downtown, which was like 260 feet or something that today we would laugh at. But yeah, New York, just like New York today, New York was running out of space. There's only one place to go, which is up. And thankfully, steel development, the elevator, all of those things came together and made it possible. I think the tallest building before they came up with the steel skeleton idea was maybe 10 stories, I think. Do you know? I forget now. Sounds right. Yeah. Because they couldn't stories. go much higher. Right. Because they had to build each floor like steps, cake, steps, you know, yeah. like up on top of each other. And you can't really go very high doing that. But once steel development came about, the steel skeleton idea took hold. And we have this fantastic skyline we have now. And we do just what they did. We go and walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's something people do when they come to New York. I mean, Winston Churchill comes in 1900, and the first thing he does is go to the tallest place in any city he visits. And so he goes right there. And that would be, speaking of these average people here in the Gilded Age in New York, that would be the highest they would ever be or could ever dream to be in their lives would be this massive bridge over the East River. And they're able to go and do it. And that in and of itself is a leisure activity that you wouldn't have had a hundred years before that. People and, just doing something fun and, and amazing. Don't forget all the daredevils who decided to jump off the bridge or yeah. fake that they were jumping <laughs> off the yeah. bridge. That was, kept New York very busy in the sort of the end of the Gilded Age. All them uh, washing up. There's one <laughs> fellow I remember in particular with his American flags. He decided this was really going to make his name. And he stuffs a bunch <laughs> of American flags in his pockets that he's going to sell after and puts one around his neck. And he goes up there and he jumps off and they fish him out around 24th Street. He didn't sell anything, let's just say. Yeah, or Steve Brody made his name, yeah. started a bar from his fame, from claiming to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge and living. Yeah, he was in Bugs Bunny. I mean, that's not nothing. I missed you know, that or, one. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. I'll, sure. Have, to, they I'll do still a, go on YouTube tonight <laughs> and check that out. Yeah, they do a whole thing. And he did. In fact, they did uh, A Hair Grows in Brooklyn. That was another parody that oh, they did. Oh, really? And that, yeah, that's why Mel Blanc, who did his voice when he was trying to choose a voice, he said, well, what's the toughest accent? So he went with kind of this mix of Brooklyn and Queens. And that was a, that was the city that he grows up in, Bugs Bunny, when they animate the little young Bugs Bunny, the bowler hat. You know, the somebody came up to me and talked about the straw hat ride. It's actually, it was Pamela Walk before I started. And she said, that sounds so amazing. That's a little bit later than your time, the actual riot, which is in 22, I believe, mm-hmm. 1922. Madison Square Park again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bunch of, there was a rule like white pants today after Labor Day where you were not allowed to wear a straw hat. It just wasn't fashionable. So these young hooligans, as they called them, <laughs> saw a man wearing a straw hat and they just started busting their hats. And if you've ever punched through a straw hat, it's a fun thing to do, right? Well, it's almost begging for it. New and York it City just... <laughs> breeds these, you know, wise asses who just go around <laughs> doing pranks. <laughs> and they did it and it ends up down at the waterfront and all these big burly guys are not going to have their hats stolen. So they start fighting with the kids and the police are called out. And, <laughs> hey, it's not a massive riot, but it's pretty disconcerting at the time. And it eventually leads a judge to say, 
that he affirms a man's right to wear a straw hat in a snowstorm on Fifth Avenue in the middle of January if he so chooses. It's his right. And there's so many of those stories that you bring back here in the Gilded Age in New York or those kinds of stories. You must have had an impossible time trying to pare it down. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you was, since you do have ephemeralnewyork.wordpress.com, you have your blog, you have your emails, did that make the challenge of editing this book down a little bit easier? Because you knew that if there was overflow and something you maybe didn't know enough about, you could still share it these other ways. Um, That's definitely true. And I definitely did that. I don't know if it made it any easier. I mean, the challenge, putting the book together... It's work, but it's really enjoyable and for me because I just love the era and I love the little stories. So the challenge for me was doing some sort of a getting the outline of the era right and then filling it with these wonderful anecdotes of things that happened and telling the story only through the eyes of people who were there. I mean, there's no source in the book that isn't a firsthand Gilded Age source, be it a diary or a newspaper article or somebody's autobiography which lent the book, I feel, a sense of like, you know, you're really there. And I hope that that came through. It's not a history book in the sense that I looked at or took anything from other books, you know, that were published in the last hundred and some odd years. I wanted everything to feel like a firsthand account, like you are really there. So I hope that does come through. Well, I can testify to it. I love reading that stuff myself. This was great. You compiled it for me. But oftentimes I read books especially from this period, and I'll say, oh, I read that before, I can skip it. And I guess that I never thought about it before, but it's not really fun for a reader to just skip over. You want to, mm. you want every page to be like John U. Bacon said to me. He spoke to an author whose name escapes me, a novelist, and he said, you know those parts of a book that you skip over? And I said, yeah. He said, I take those out. And so John U. Bacon said, that's what I tried to do in my book is just keep it moving fast. His book is The Great Halifax Explosion. I'll be airing that in a couple of months. And that's how I felt about your book. It wasn't the thousandth retelling for me, like to mm-hmm. bring up TR again, Tweed Roosevelt, his great grandson, who's keeper of his legacy. He said, people always come up to me and they'll tell me, the same stories. And I'm always polite and I listen, but I have heard them before and they'll say, I bet you never heard this one. And it's a similar story. And so for me to be able to pick up a book, if you're going to recommend a book to somebody about that period you love or an interesting book, this isn't something you've gone over a million times because nobody goes down and asks these middle-class people, this family that's going to go to the Catskills for vacation. Mm -hmm. Everybody focuses on the extreme squalor and the extreme brightness and the craziness of an electric dress. But in the Gilded Age in New York, you remind us that there were more than just the lung block and there was more than just Fifth <laughs> Avenue. There's, there's not just people in the Cherry Street where they were just dying of tuberculosis. So many people and this opulence. There's a whole bunch of people in between. Yeah. I mean, to me, what's interesting again is just sort of the average person's life is fascinating to me. I, I only wish that every person, you know, had a full diary that I could access and spend the rest of my life looking back and reading. There are a few great diaries that, you know, like as again, I mentioned before that I relied on. What did the average person do when they got up in the morning? What time did they get up? There's some great stories about the um, blizzard of 1888. The newspapers covered it so thoroughly because it was such a shock. I'm sure you're all familiar with the blizzard of 1888. And there's great stories about how people were freezing in their tenement apartments because 
there was no coal deliveries. They didn't have coal. They couldn't access coal. I mean, imagine just being so dependent on the truck delivering coal that if you don't have it for a few days because of a natural disaster like a blizzard, you could freeze to death. It's amazing to me. It was the same city and yet just as crippled by snow sometimes or a massive storm. Like when you're in those buildings, you're in the same building that somebody was in maybe that suffered through that in a blizzard that we have now or when we had mm -hmm. uh, Superstorm Sandy's hit and you're plunged back into the past in the very same building. It's, it really mm -hmm. is cool to be able to look at that. And I guess that's what inspired you to write the book and to start your blog because these are things that are all around us that you could walk by it a million times and never know that it played such a big role in the Gilded Age. Yeah, I mean, the blog started out, what I generally try to do is take some remnant of something that still exists in the city, even if it's just a faded ad on the side of a building, and kind of tell the story of what it is and what it meant in the era. Again, it's just my way of kind of peeking into like past stories and people's past lives. And I tried to do that with the book as well. It's kind of a great way to get into a story and give it just a different angle or a different tone, a different, a different way to get in. I love looking at like sort of the crevices and the pockets of New York. And like you said, like you look at an old lamppost and you think that was there a hundred years ago. What was this area like then? What was this little corner like? And then you have a story. A lot of those buildings that's from then that still have names on them. And it'll be a company name. So it's not just a person's name. Like I think about on Second Ave, First Ave, and, and maybe Eighth, there's a building with McKinley. Well, they put names of presidents on there. But some of them are just, this is a building. This was somebody's haberdashery. This was you know, somebody's business. There, there's that a great tenement building. They would name tenements too, of course. And there's a great tenement building. It's on like First Avenue and 14th or 2nd and 14th. And it's the name of a senator, a completely obscure guy from New York at the time. I can't remember his name right off the top of my head, but I always looked at that and thought, what an odd name. Who is that person? And then, you know, I looked it up and it turns out to be a senator. But, you know, just the building names tell you stories of the past. You could go just a few blocks east of here into what used to be little Germany. And a lot of the buildings are in, the names are in German. There's a lot of Germans still there. And it's, it's just fascinating to just take a walk down St. Mark's and see all that. I love the whole idea of being able to just walk after you've looked at your blog and see a building in a whole new way after you've gone through. And the book is a bigger version of that. So was the previous book, which had the stereoscope in it, right? The mm -hmm. glasses where if you've seen Gilded Age pictures, they had, I mean, that was going to the movies back then. Yeah, I like to think of that as like, you know, their Netflix, basically, like <laughs> their form of entertainment, just looking <laughs> showing at stereoscopes and, <laughs> I mean, stereographs. Because you never might have seen it. You never might have, you never, you are not going to go to Paris if you're one of those middle class families, you'd think. There were somewhere real far away you're not going to jump there like we do right. unless you go study abroad or something. So this is really part of it where you start it with that period after the Civil War. There's the panic then or people are out of work. There's that cycle after this big boom time, all this government spending to preserve the union. That's where you choose to start the book is with Lincoln's funeral. Talk about what New York City was like as there's this great outpouring of mourning that actually in the Gilded Age would occur twice more for President Garfield to a lesser extent who dies in New Jersey, down at the Jersey Shore, and then William McKinley, who's slain in Buffalo, New York. So talk about Lincoln. Talk about how his death sparks this period. 
Oh yeah, the I mean, there's there's great stories of people just completely awash in grief when they hear about Lincoln being assassinated. The martyred president, they kept calling him. Literally within a day, the whole city was just draped in black. People put black all over their um, windows, and just this incredible outpouring of grief that almost seems like you can't believe it. I mean, when you think about how people look at our presidents today, maybe because we're, we feel so close to them in their daily lives, we don't put them on a pedestal. But Lincoln was, you know, that, that really meant something to people. Walt Whitman has a great anecdote in his uh, one of his journals of hearing about it, and he's crying up Broadway. It doesn't sound like he's just making that up to come off as very emotional. I mean, it really... He really was crying up Broadway. The city prepared for the funeral train to come. I think it was 150,000 people stood outside of City Hall where Lincoln lay in his casket to catch a glimpse of him. That's amazing. I think he stayed overnight in City Hall, and then the next morning they began the great funeral march up Broadway and then out to 30th Street on the west side where they caught the train to Albany for the next stop. But it's really just hard to imagine, you know, just this incredible morning. Especially since we'd had the, we, they had the draft riots back then. And there was talk of it just declaring an open city so that the Confederacy could still come. And yeah, New, New, New York didn't cotton. even, New York City did not support the Civil War. I mean, the mayor at the time even proposed an idea that New York City secede from New York State and form its own sort of state that wouldn't be part of the Union. I mean, it's crazy, but that was actually an idea somebody had. But once the war started, the city really did support it until about 1863, when so many men were dying and the richer people were able to buy their way out. Obviously, the draft riots came about, you know, some serious anger and dissatisfaction with the way it was going. But by the end of the war, when the Union, you know, was clear that the Union was winning... New York came back on board again. There's that theme again of how the city comes together and becomes one place. And there's a picture not of Lincoln's, but of the McKinley funeral procession, which people all today think of of Lincoln. And we are not surprised as the great emancipator would have this outpouring of grief. But for McKinley, they turn off the phones. They have this three minutes of total silence. And you can see a picture if you go into McSorley's Old Ale House, the oldest bar in New York City, which is up the street here, and make it right on 7th Street. And you could see just all these people everywhere, all the crepe that you talked about, and people just standing there, completely quiet, and just being very respectful of him. You couldn't go in and have a drink anywhere. Everything was shut down. Everything was just completely quiet for him. Think about it. Think about that shutting down telephone service. People would be more upset about that today than they would be about a a president dying or, or anybody passing away. It was just the way that the technology, because I think it was still so new and the way the city was going was still so new, that it immediately became incorporated and almost made it part of their lives, the way that they would mourn, the way that they would adopt this new technology. Okay, now we're making this magic talking box phone call. So mm-hmm. let's that's got to somehow mourn too. 
because that's our, that's our thing now. That's part of our lives. And they learned how to use it. Think about just why you start to say hello. People in the Gilded Age have to figure that out. What do you say when the phone rings? <laughs> right? Why do we say that? Like, it's just, we say it publicly because that's just what people say. I think, uh, Alexander Graham Bell thought you should say ahoy hoy. Right. Which is one reason why Mr. Burns says it on The Simpsons because it's very old school way to answer a telephone. These are all things that they just in the course of their lives learn in the Gilded Age that we still do. Right. And by the way, it's a beautiful picture of the Flatiron Building on the front of your book. It looks so much like it does today. And how amazing, because at the time, like so many things in New York, people thought that it was just going to fall over and that it was just never going to last and they didn't like it. I mean, the Flatiron to me is just so beautiful. And I think, I forget who it was, but somebody, I think it was H.G. Wells on a trip to New York described it as like a giant, like a ship coming up the harbor. I mean, I really love that because that's what it does look like. But what I love about the the Flatiron Building is that at the time it was called Burnham's Folly after the developer or the architect, uh, because everybody thought it was going to fall down, like twenty two stories. That's crazy. Like, who, how could a building stay up? <laughs> and there were these there were great stories in the newspapers of the time of crowds of people would just be standing at Twenty Third Street watching its construction as if they were just waiting for the moment they wanted to be there when it finally just <laughs> blew over, which obviously it never did. Yeah. But. And especially because they cover it with terracotta. Of all things you're going to think to put on the outside of a building, what are you going to put? You know, glass there, steel? What are you going to build it out of? I'm going to make it out of pottery. Like what? <laughs> That's what you're going to put on the outside, and yet it endures. Yeah, and it's a great, another great symbol of the Gilded Age to me because, you know, um, obviously we had the raw materials to make it now, but the idea that somebody wanted to do it and didn't just sort of stick with the safety of 10 stories and under. And the bow of the ship is particularly relevant here to the Gilded Age in New York because you begin it by saying 23rd Street, that was most everybody, 800,000 people right in New York. They're all clustered below 23rd yeah. when the book begins. And so that that would have been a really like the bow of a ship. It's plowing upward. It's plowing north into the, what becomes Midtown and where the theater district moves to and Radio City Music Hall. We have so much Central Park, everything. It really was a fitting metaphor for it. Yeah, there's a great, I think it was Edith Wharton. Her family lived on 23rd Street. That's part of where she grew up. And in her biography, she writes, remembering that above, she would walk above 23rd Street along Fifth Avenue with her father, and it was just fields. It was just nothing. And then they would get to 42nd Street where the great reservoir was for the Croton Aqueduct. And you're, you just can't believe that. And this is the 1860s. You can't even believe that, you know, New York, there really was nothing above that in terms of neighborhoods and great brownstones and buildings that are there now. Well, I have one final question since time is something that always gets away from us talking here about the Gilded Age. I hope we've wet people's appetites. But when our guests here at the conference walk out onto the Bowery, the former Skid Row, what do you hope that they'll observe in our modern city? How do you hope their eyes will be opened here from listening to you speak today and seeing some of these pictures out of the Gilded Age in New York? That will make them maybe close their eyes, hear some echoes of the past as they walk through our city now. I think I just would love people to kind of close their eyes and just imagine, you know, you're on a street corner that existed in the Gilded Age, but just imagine how the sounds, the, you know, not what you're seeing, but what you would hear. You would hear this incredible rush of a train, an elevated train above you. There'd be this massive amount of dust all over the streets because the streets were filthy. The horses that pulled the horse cars and the street cars were 
produce some incredible amount of waste every day. Like we forget what that was like. And just the crowds you would hear, you would, you would have, um, it was perfectly normal for small children to just be playing in the streets and unfortunately get hit by some of these streetcars. But imagine all the sounds you would hear and, you know, think about the, the crowds at the bars, which were all men. There were no women obviously allowed in bars at the time. And even in restaurants, that would be extremely unseemly. Just sort of imagine what you would hear, what, what, what you think it would be, you know, these vestiges of the Gilded Age that, like the, the physical structures are still there, the street is still there, but just how different it was, just what life was like. Sort of the outlines of your life were the same. We ate the same meals, went to bed generally the same time and all that, but just what you would hear, what you would experience was so dramatically different. The sound of hoofs on cobblestone, that kind of thing. It was just completely commonplace and no longer, unless you live on one of the rare cobblestone streets and have a horse, but <laughs> I don't know many people that would do that. And worth remembering the smells, too, of all those horses yeah. and all of the things you have in the street and some of the sewage and people dumping their sewage out, their bedpans yeah. out the windows, and right? people would throw their garbage out the window. The idea yeah. of a garbage can or garbage <laughs> removal that didn't really take hold until the White Wings came in in the 1890s, which was the great civil service sanitation department that actually made the city more sanitary. I mean, in the Gilded Age, there were pigs running around, just wild pigs. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, eating, eating garbage. the garbage. That was Ooh. the garbage removal of the time. <laughs> yeah. I have one final anecdote, and that was there was a saloon keeper, and a horse died outside his building, which happened all the time in the heat. And he kept calling the police every day for a week and then eight days and then 10 days and two weeks saying, will you please move this dead horse from outside my bar? When he called on the 14th day, the police said, yes, yes, we know you want us to move the horse. And he said, no, I want you to move my bar. Can you please <laughs> just move me? I, I cannot be here with this dead horse anymore. So this is the kind, <laughs> this is the kind of stories that we're going to get, especially about the white wings, how we have the city that we sometimes take for granted today and yet all feel so much part of wherever you are from though in the world listening here. This is a great book to read. Everybody's fascinated by Gotham and that's the foundation of that legend is laid right here in the Gilded Age. Esther Crane, author of The Gilded Age in New York, thank you so much for joining me at the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference. I want to thank Nicholas Hirschen of William Patterson University and Pamela Walk of Duquesne University for inviting us to do this interview live today in front of this audience right on the former Skid Row with so many ghosts of the past who are hiding in the shadows. And if you ever wanted to see ghosts like that little kid in that movie, you can do it by reading The Gilded Age in New York. They'll, they'll reveal themselves to you and it's pretty wonderful. They're not the scary ghost kinds. I wish you the best of luck with your latest book, Esther, and continued success with the wildly popular ephemeral New York blog. Thank you, Dean. It's a pleasure. Again, the book is The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com 
gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional charge in your shopping cart. So the next time you want to buy a watch fob, think of HistoryAuthor.com first. Once again, thanks so much to Esther Crane for joining me at the Joint Journalism and Communication History Conference to whisk us back to the days of Pullman cars, gaslights, and an independent Brooklyn. Plus, it gave me a chance to talk about things like watch fobs that I don't get to do a whole lot. You can find Esther's blog, Ephemeral New York, at ephemeralnewyork.wordpress.com, where you can sign up for those emails containing stories of the faded and forgotten city all around us. It really is a pleasant surprise on Monday morning. You can also find Esther on Twitter at ephemeralny, or like her blog's Facebook page. And you can let us know what you think of this week's chat at NYU on the Bowery, on Twitter at HistoryDean, Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, or at our Instagram account. Those are all places you can enjoy images from the horse-powered Gotham, celebrated in our theme song, and in Esther Crane's work. Thanks also to JJCHC's co-sponsors, the American Journalism Historians Association, and the History Division of the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. We really appreciate them inviting us to close out their event with special appreciation to Nicholas Hershon of William Patterson University and Pamela Walk of Duquesne. That's it for this special live audience installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you're an iTunes subscriber like Nick Hershon, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us back to the Bowery, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.